Good morning, everyone. It's Monday, August 15. I'm Raji and I'm in for Mike this week. So much going on. So let's get to it, including this good news, bad news story. The good news about adult students or mature students, as they're called, is that more are returning to university since the pandemic. But the bad news is that they are facing some challenges, some barriers even. So joining us now to explain more about that is Heather Sorella from Concordia University. She's just written an article in the conversation conversation on the topic. Good morning, Heather. Good morning. How are you today? Great. So first of all, adults are presumably, let's say, you know, mid or late career. Uh, They've maybe got families, more responsibilities, say an established lifestyle that they're used to. So why are they going back to university in droves right now? Well, as a matter of fact, when we want to give a definition for a mature student or an adult learner, they start at 25 years old. So we're looking at students from 25 to about 55, a little into 60 also. The reason people are going back to school is, I think, for two major reasons. Career opportunities, which we think about maybe getting a better job. And we've realized that with the pandemic now that people are looking for other choices in their lives. And then there's some people that are going back for personal growth. Just they wanted to get a degree. They're working on it now. They feel it's time. So there's many, many factors why people are going back to school. Okay. And you mentioned there about possible career growth. And we know that so many industries are having a difficult time these days trying to find and retain employees. Uh, Are people looking at possibly getting a degree because they feel that gives them better backup? Yes, it does. Because I think now, even though we don't, there's a high demand for work out there. I think, you know, employers are still looking for People that have, you know, post-secondary education, they're looking for people that might have, you know, are trying to, you know, advance. They're looking at, they're at school, they're trying to make better decisions. Because I think even though we are post-pandemic right now, I think still the ways employers look at hiring people is still a little bit pre-pandemic. And I think when we ask ourselves why, why are there so many jobs available, let's say, I think that the employers themselves, which could be another barrier that we could add on to today's conversation because they're still thinking pre-pandemic. They're not looking at what we, we have learned as adults, what's happened right now in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You wrote about challenges for returning to school as a mature student. What are they? Well, there's the situational barriers that I think everybody can understand. And, it, and it's not really gender-based. I think it's your family life, your children, uh, you know, caregiving, because a lot of, let's say, some we, we spoke about the age right away, but right away, if you have your have parents, and a lot of the baby boomers right now are taking care of parents. So that's another um, situation that they're in. They have a multiple, a multiplicity of roles, let's say, that they have to encounter, like you said, their employees, their employers, their parents, Lots is going on. A lot of stuff is going on there, the personal factors. And these sometimes are a little bit harder, but we speak more about this. But then there's also the institutions themselves. They are focused on traditional students. And what I mean by that is, yes, it's open all day. But what happens if you finish work at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock and you want to meet with your professor, the faculty? They're not usually around. Or how about if you want to see a pedagogical advisor? sorry, we're up at about four o'clock, like, you know, at four o'clock, everybody's gone. So I think that some of these different institutional factors have to be taken a look at. To be honest, going back sometimes at night to the university, there's not that many people there. And there's not that many courses that are offered at night as much as in the day. And the final one is dispositional. That's how we feel about ourselves 
as adults when we return to school. Do we have the, the right skill set? Do, do we lack experience as far as, you know, technology? So there's a lot of little bit of things like that. And when I bring in the, the gender here is when you, as an adult learner, walk into a classroom with younger students, you look at yourself and you ask yourself, do I belong here? And that starts this whole circle, again, of all the barriers. Well, maybe I'll stay with my children. My children need me. The institution doesn't want me. So there's a lot of factors there. So that's what my research is based on. I'm trying to triangulate these three to see what's best for the student, what's best for the teacher, and what's best for the institution. They need to work together. What would you like the institution to do more of? Like, what could the university do in terms of providing enough or which resources even would they provide to mature students that would help them out? Well, the best thing that we have now is online learning, right? I know we want to go back on campus. It's, it's much easier to learn when you have a lot of people around you. But I think we've also learned through the pandemic that online courses work. Maybe what I'm thinking is if you want to go, if you're going to be on campus, provide, provide maybe better childcare, you know, somewhere that you can put your, your children so that you can go back to school, especially when it comes to women. This is my, where my research is coming from. There's that emotional labor, like have they eaten their supper? Have they, are they watching TV? What are they doing? And that sometimes can affect mothers. So if I think if we have places that we can, you know, extend our childcare, I also believe like we need to make sure that you have access after six o'clock. Maybe they can have, you know, uh, courses that are given after, let's say, nine o'clock when parents can maybe have the time to take the course online. So there's so many different factors out there that the institutions can do. And also, why don't they try to make the curricula more for adults? Because the thing about adults, when they walk into the classroom, their expectation is, I'm here to learn. They want to make sure that the prior knowledge that they bring to the classroom and the lived experience that they have can assimilate into the classroom and into the work. So we have to be able for the institution to also change what they're providing. We talk about employers being pre-COVID, institutions have to change. You also mentioned caregiving, and I wonder how just how mature students are even doing it. How are they able to hold down a job and also care, take care of people in their families and their household as well as study? Yeah, it's to be honest, it's it's something that you really want to do. There has to be a relevance for you to do this. One of the a lot in the research when we talk about adult learners, there has to be a relevance. So, am I going back to school for external factors? Do I want to make more money? Do I want a better job? Does my employer expect me to have more professional development? Right? These are some of the questions. As far as personal growth, I think during the pandemic, we were all educating ourselves online. And I think a lot of people realized, wow, I really like this. And yes, it's impossible sometimes to be a caregiver, like we call the baby boomers, like a sandwich generation. But I I believe that taking more courses online, having institutions give this for people to be able to have that sense. We know that caregivers are the highest level of burnout victims, we could say, because they don't have an escape. I think education and online courses for these individuals would really help them feel good, relieve some stress. And I think institutions can do that too. Because as a society, we have to realize what's happened after this pandemic and the levels of stress and anxiety everyone has. And when we think of caregivers taking care of their parents, caring, taking care of their own children, taking care of their grandchildren, they need an out. And I think 
providing them some resources would be a wonderful opportunity for them. Heather, I studied political science for my undergraduate degree, and I recall there actually being a decent amount of mature students uh, in the lecture hall. And people I talked to who were mature students back then, and even people I talk to now who are mature students, they all have this kind of uh, joy about their studies that I find the younger students who came straight out of high school don't have. What is going on there? Well, I believe one of the things about adult learners, when they come into the classroom, they have these lived experiences and they're, and they're there and they're enthusiastic. There's a curiosity. That's something that takes time. Like, you know, that, that's the way I look at it. When I, when I was at university and, you know, it's, and with ad, and this is where this came from for me too. It was, wow, there's, how do, why are these adult learners like myself are so excited to be here, you know? And the reason is, is because they want to learn. They're willing to learn. They find a relevance and learn. And the research, which is, you know, very important to show that there's a transition when you go to school, you change. And that's documented in so much research for adult learners. There's a change, a transformation that happens, a confidence, independence. I should have done this when I was younger type of attitude. So this is, yeah, they're, they're great. You know, people that have the opportunity to go into classes when you see an adult learner, I think they should take the time and appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks, Heather. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Have a great day. Welcome back, everyone. Raji here in for Mike Smith. When you stroll your neighborhood, are you seeing for sale signs? Are they lingering for longer than they did this time last year? On my own block, I have seen two houses go up in the last couple of months that were actually taken off the market after a few weeks of lowball offers. That is not what we would have expected to have seen just even a year ago. So things have changed. How much have they changed and what's going on with the market right now in BC? Here to break down what we might be in store for with local real estate is Dane Itell, founder and lead analyst at Itell Insights. Hey, Dane. Good morning, Roger. Great to be with you. All right. How about an overview? What's going on with real estate these days? Sure. So we're definitely seeing uh, a rollover effect in the in the market across the landscape. Uh, so the detached average sale price has actually dropped 12 percent from its high. Uh, which occurred in April of this year, of course. So that was average sale price of 2.312 in April of 2022. And currently we're sitting at $2,041,000. So again, a 12% drop. Whereas the condo market is only experienced a 6% drop, which actually you know, makes sense because the condo market tends to lag the detached market as we go forward. Okay, 6% versus 12%. How did those numbers sit with you? Uh, it, it actually makes sense. So last month in the detached market, we broke the technical uptrend, which has been instigated basically since the um, the takeoff during 2020, when we really experienced that lack of inventory and overwhelming demand. Now we've actually caught up somewhat in the supply demand metrics. So again, two months ago, the supply demand metrics finally switched for the first time in two years into the buyer's favor in the detached market. What we're experiencing in the condo market is actually just those two factors have finally come and met in the middle. So what we're noticing, though, in the market, because there has been so much equity growth really across the across the map, homeowners are choosing to maybe not put their house to the market and actually choosing to rent it out because, you know, putting it on the market where there's not so much demand and there is extreme complications in buying with the new mortgage rates and those rate holds starting to run out. So we're experiencing some people actually pushing their way into the market, but not enough inventory coming on. Now, is that just a summer lull, or is that going to be something that we experience going forward, which will really curtail or uh, portray 
what we're going to be experiencing for the next six months or so. Do you think homeowners who are looking to sell, who are thinking about selling, got a little too greedy? <laughs> so there's always a greed factor, and there is a realization that you know the, the, the peak market has come and gone. So those that um, were expecting to win the lottery, for lack of a better term, again, those days are, are well over. So a properly priced pro- a property coming in, it, it still does create demand in the marketplace there still very much is buyers except those buyers have more finite dollars the banks are getting more stringent with their um, with their requirements and their pre-approvals they're actually increasing the mortgage rate from what you would actually get today if you're going to be looking out 90 days because they are anticipating you know at least a 50 to a 75 basis point increase in the upcoming interest rate so the banks are being a lot tighter the buyers are being a little bit more leery and of course the sellers will have to react to that so going forward again in this marketplace, you're going to have to be much more realistic and expect the property to re- remain on the market for a longer period of time if you're hoping to achieve a sale. So you mentioned some of these homeowners had uh, put put their places on, pulled them off and, and rented instead. Is there a market for that? There absolutely is. Um, again, with the mortgage rate increases, you're going to see a lot more tenants coming into this marketplace. And this is going to be the trend probably for the next 15, 20 years. I mean, we are a metropolis and we're going to follow very much the New York model and a lot of the major cities across Europe, where over time, a majority of the people just expect to rent or to lease properties. It's not necessary that everybody actually gets to own properties in these high value areas. So it's kind of, um, you know, we take it for granted that we live here, but the whole world wouldn't mind living in Vancouver as well. I mean, it's the retirement capital of Canada. So there is um, always going to be demand. However, with these extreme prices and that demand actually pushes some people out forever from actually ownership in Greater Vancouver. Dane, mortgage brokers tell me that business is slowing, and I know you're probably hearing something similar. They're citing that clients who were financially depending on maxing out their purchasing power with those previously very low interest rates, that those folks are now suddenly out of the game because they can't get approved for mortgages anymore. But wasn't that the intention of the rising interest rate? It was the intention, um, and, and the oddity of that, it, it, it does keep people out of the market, but typically during inflation, I mean, gold goes higher, but so do property values. So what we're experiencing here is a little bit of a, um, a, a quagmire in that respect, whereas the property values are falling off quite precipitously. I mean, again, down 12% in really only three months is a, is a pretty decent loss for the detached average sale price. And across the board, all 20 areas in the condo and the detached market have fallen off. The only one that created an all-time new high this last month was the condo market in Tawasin, which had an average sale price of $777,000. The rest of the markets are off, most of them in double digits. Uh, The outlier is Pitt Meadows, detached market, which is off 44% from its near-term high. That's so interesting. You mentioned this 12% drop. Uh, That's pretty high for a house in just three months. So how much more do you think it could drop? So we're, it's going to be, at the end of the day, it's ultimately going to be a 20 plus percent correction. What we have been forecasting and now has come to fruition because of the, the rapid increase from basically 1,982,000 in January of 2021 to the $2.3 million, or sorry, in 2022 to the 2.3 in April, there was only a couple of months of data points where it shot up over $200,000. So when you don't have data points to support it on the way lower, you do anticipate and then ultimately realize a volatile marketplace. That's what we're in right now. And again, if this inventory can find its, um, you know, the uptick again in the fall market, 
will ex- continue to experience a volatile market. If the inventory, however, does not come to the market, then that will actually put a bit of a pressure back on the buyer side. But we are expecting this to just be a summer lull and we'll actually experience maybe a bit of a more decline market going into 2023. Last question here, just around stock. It was such slim pickings five months ago when people were buying houses. I was hearing of folks buying houses that did not fulfill half of the things that they wanted it to, but they just went for it. And they looks like now they spent too much for it. Um, What are you seeing in terms of stock right now? Do you expect that it will go up or dwindle? So what's interesting about that, we're actually sitting at 4,500 uh, active listings over or as of last month for the detached market, and the condo market is sitting at 4,200. They're both testing their downtrends, technically speaking. So if we can see a realization of maybe you know, a couple hundred, it's not going to take very many uh, properties coming to the market to solidify that market break, that trend break, and then you see an obvious discernible action resulting from that trend break. So we are expecting to see more inventory as we go into the fall. Now, they might stay on the market longer. As as you've said, properties aren't selling as quick. So that nominal increase of inventory will actually look like a lot just because the sales have been so pulled back. We only realized 534 completed sales in this last month of the detached market, which is the lowest since April of 2020, which is really when yeah. that instigation of COVID began. So the sales have fallen off the cliff um, and the inventory will likely continue to rise, which of course will be in the buyer's favor as we go forward. Okay, Dane, thanks so much for giving us some time this morning. My pleasure, Raji. Hey, welcome back. I'm Raji Sohal filling in for Mike Smith today. When you think about Vancouver's downtown core, do you think, hey, there's a city that's thriving? Well, it turns out that Leger has just done a survey on our perception of downtown. For more, we've got Steve Mossop with us. He is executive VP at Leger 360. Hey, Steve. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right. What did the studies find? Well, it was inspired really from out west, you know, uh, all the media attention that the downtown is is getting recently. And I thought it would be an interesting question to table nationwide. So we put a few questions together to look at the state of decline of downtown downtown cores across the country. And what we found is that 45% of Canadians feel that the downtown core of the closest major city to which they live in has declined significantly in the past year. So it's a pretty big number, and it's highest in B.C. So B.C. stands out at 54%. The rest of the country is in the 40s. But it's not just a, a Vancouver problem. It's a, it's a suburban problem. 50% of people that live in the suburbs say the same thing. And it's even a rural problem. 38% of Canadians in rural areas say that their downtown core has deteriorated. Okay, so what's behind that number? Well, it's no surprise at the top of the list um, that Canadians feel is the reason is mental health challenges for vulnerable populations. That's 90 percent. Homelessness is 88 percent. Lack of affordable housing, 88 percent. And drug addiction, 82. So there's a a laundry list of reasons that we're all familiar with, especially living here in Vancouver. And do people feel a sense of hope around it, that this is just temporary or that this is kind of a a long-term issue? Well, we pulled on it at about a year into the pandemic, and people really felt the difference uh, with empty downtown cores. So there was increased litter, vandalism, graffiti, and and that there was hope then that wow, when the when the pandemic's over, we'll just get back to work and all these things will go away. And of course, in a, in another recent poll that we did, forty percent of Canadians are still working from home, 
and and that doesn't give the chance to revitalize those downtown cores of people. So the problem continues on. And so I think there is a sense of hopelessness about it, actually. But Steve, isn't it the case that like, you know, you go, you walk around downtown Vancouver at lunch hour and yeah, for sure, there are fewer folks out than there were pre-pandemic, but those people are still, you know, they're bus, they're walking around, they're bustling to some extent and there's still homelessness. Like how will downtown cores being filled with uh, more workers, people who used to work at home coming back to the city core, uh, how is that going to combat homelessness? Hmm. I think that's a good question. When we, when we posed it, there was actually a person that was working from home downtown, and we had an office downtown, and she had experienced uh, several verbal assaults over over the course of her working from home, just you know going out and about. And I guess the, the conversation in the office was, well, if every if downtown becomes vibrant again with lots of people, that maybe that wouldn't happen as much because there's more people to intervene and and uh, maybe stand up for an average person. So that was the feeling behind it. And perhaps uh, we're, we're wrong. It's the, the problems will not go away. Yeah, certainly. I think there's certain things like graffiti, for example, that might uh, not be done so brazenly in the middle of the day if there were more people around downtown. But I also think about these downtown office buildings and, you know, food courts. Uh, some of the less, you know, previously less popular ones seem like now they're in major decline. And you talk to people who are working from home and, hey, they're thrilled. They're thrilled to not be buying their daily coffee out or getting lunch to go. I hear from people that not working downtown anymore means that they're not walking through the mall to the parkade, shopping along the way. So what yeah. do you say to the people who are, you know, they're working from home and they say, hey, this might be bad for consumerism, but it's been great for my own personal level of happiness. Yeah, we pulled extensively on that throughout the pandemic, and that was part of the reason for the massive increase in savings rates from people. They're not buying their Starbucks, they're not buying lunch out, they're not buying new shoes, they're wearing their flip-flops around the house. And and that resulted in this massive influx of cash at the end of the pandemic that now people are spending on vacations and home renovations and all, all of that stuff. That's interesting. So they're still spending it, but they're they're spending it elsewhere? Exactly. And you said that this has kind of been a trend across Canada. And are people feeling a sense of hopelessness about it elsewhere besides in Vancouver? Well, it's particularly pronounced in Vancouver because of, uh, if you look at experiences, we measured uh, what people have experienced going downtown. And the prominent one is fear for your safety. So about 15% of Canadians have been to a downtown core in the past six months and have felt fear for their own safety. But it goes further than that. So aggressive behavior is experienced by 14%, 9% vehicle break-ins, 8% vandalism, 7% petty theft. You add them all up and you've got 30% of the Canadian population experiencing something negative having gone to a downtown core. And, and getting back to your question, it's worse in BC. Those numbers are really off the chart uh, relative to other places. So fear for safety is 22% versus the Canadian average is just seven points lower. Uh, Experiences around aggressive behavior in BC also significantly higher at 18% compared to anywhere else. Vehicle break-ins almost double the rate of other provinces. So we particularly feel the, the pain of, of those experiences downtown here versus the rest of the country. Yeah. Steve, thanks so much for giving us your time this morning. Thank you very much. We're talking about Trump. When the FBI first raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago home last week, we heard that he had no important documents there. Well, Eric Trump went as far as to even saying this. 
My father always kept clippings, um, you know, press clippings. He would have, you know, newspaper articles, pictures, notes from us. Uh, when my mom passed away a couple weeks ago, you know, he still had all the, the notes, uh, you know, over the years had been saved, all the notes that she had ever written him. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. My father saves clippings and things like that. So he had, he had boxes, right, when he moved out of the White House. Okay, so Eric Trump there suggesting that uh, his dad, Donald Trump, is actually just uh, into scrapbooking, etc. Well, fast forward a few days, and now it's that the documents weren't just old clippings, but it's okay because the former president could just take whatever he wanted to. He had a standing order that documents removed from the Oval Office and taken to the residence were deemed to be declassified the moment he removed them. The power to classify and declassify documents rests solely with the president of the United States. The idea that some paper-pushing bureaucrat with classification authority delegated by the president needs to approve that the classification is absurd. Okay, well, here to break down the latest on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago FBI raid is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, good morning. Good morning. Okay, what is the latest with Trump? Uh, I mean... Look, we're at, uh, you know, late morning in Vancouver, early afternoon in Washington, D.C., and the latest is the fight is still ongoing as to what exactly was taken by uh, FBI agents during that raid. We found out late last week uh, when the search warrant was made public that much of it was top secret and some of it was so top secret that it is not supposed to leave a secured facility. And in the hours and couple of days since that point, uh, the excuses have really changed by the hour from declassified to it was simply work from home material to, you know, the government services administration put things into the wrong boxes uh, back to the declassified issue. Um, and I think I'll, I'll, you know, just to kind of clarify what that Trump associate was saying, well, the president of the United States does have ultimate authority on declassifying information. There is a process in order to ensure that material that the president wants declassified is the appropriate material to be declassified. And that's how we end up in a situation with potential nuclear documents being at Mar-a-Lago. And how much are people wondering, though, if uh, like just as to the reasons as to why Trump would even take classified documents with him to Mar-a-Lago? Well, I mean, look, that's that's the big unknown right now. The former president's people on Friday made a point of saying that this was simply GSA putting things in the wrong boxes and then the wrong boxes were delivered to Mar-a-Lago. And while that excuse could work maybe on the surface, all you have to do is scratch, you know, a millimeter or two below that and realize that, number one, this has been a more than year long fight with National Archives to be able to get this information back to uh, these secured uh, facilities. Uh, but number two, it is unknown what the real reasons for these documents being not only in Mar-a-Lago, but in unsecured areas of Mar-a-Lago were. And three, this years-long effort had the FBI involved, had subpoenas involved, information had been sent back, Donald Trump's lawyer said you have all the information, and then that documents were still found in an unsecured location. So the questions are growing, not only from Democrats, from some moderate Republicans as well, but so too is the kind of contorted defense of the former president. 
I wonder, you know, Trump has been relaxed, even uh, cavalier with documents and sensitive information before. There was that time that he tweeted that uh, sensitive surveillance satellite image, the one that showed the aftermath of an accident at an Iranian space facility. And he just kind of acted like, well, I can do what I want. I want. I'm the president. What do you think it's going to take for his supporters to turn on him? I don't know if if that's ever going to happen. Uh, And it's because Republicans are setting this up to be the losers uh, in whatever kind of decision goes forward, at least via the Justice Department. And what I mean by that is from people that I've been talking to on the Hill, uh, there is a fear here that if Department of Justice opts to move forward with charges against the former president, whether it has to do with the Presidential Records Act or whether it has to do with something far more egregious like a violation of the Espionage Act, this is going to enrage the base. This is going to become a politicized event with Republicans pushing back to say that this was simply an attempt to go after a potential future political rival uh, of, of, of Joe Biden. The secondary issue here is if the Justice Department does not lay charges, this is going to lead to an enraged base and enraged Republicans by saying that this was an extreme exercise for nothing, to simply get documents back, and no charges is going to lead the, the base likely to push back uh, and and further politicize this moment. So there is a real possibility here that the Justice Department being damned if they do and damned if they don't is going to find themselves receiving significant backlash from both the base and from Republicans. And what about Republican politicians? I know some are, are tweeting right now, defund the FBI. What are we overwhelmingly hearing from Republican politicians? Well, what's interesting about that is this is supposed to be the party that is backing law enforcement. This is the party that during the the protests of the summer of 2020 were the ones who were standing up to push back on the protesters and defend the FBI and defend uh, members of the law enforcement agencies. Uh, And here we are now, fast forward a couple of years, and it's now the law enforcement agents themselves that Republicans feel are, are being politicized by Democrats and you know, to to see a comment from Representative Paul Gosar saying destroy the FBI and you see words like Gestapo and you see words like tyrants, uh, you know, what this does is is put a potential target on members of FBI and on members uh, of DOJ solely because this is a Republican Party that has spent so many years trying to figure out a way to back what the president, what the former president is doing without, you know, kind of paying attention to the reality focusing on the process and not on the matter. Uh, And that's where Republicans, at least the ones who are kind of staunch supporters, have found themselves in that they will do no matter they will do anything uh, to to defend Donald Trump, no matter whether it means kind of skirting or subverting reality. Yeah, you mentioned it there that Republicans historically support the FBI and other institutions like that, that that hold up American so-called values. Um, So how much further do you think they're going to take these uh, these claims that the FBI is corrupt? Well, I mean, look, just in the last 72 plus hours, we saw uh, somebody, you know, armed with a nail gun and and some uh, some shielding on uh, walk into an FBI agency office uh, just in Cincinnati that led to, uh, you know, a police 
involved shooting uh, in rural Ohio uh, because there has been such uh, vitriol spoken about law enforcement uh, over the last week since these agents carried out this search. And this is where the attorney general made that unprecedented uh, speech last week, putting himself, you know, uncomfortably in the middle of what is becoming a more politicized um, environment, uh, saying that he stands beside law members. He is the top law enforcement uh, 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 person in this country. He will not tolerate these attacks on FBI or DOJ members. And, and what this does is kind of amplify the the kind of hatred that is existing right now, especially in the darker parts uh, of the Internet uh, and the darker parts of the Trump base, uh, who are the ones that are coming out and making these critical comments. I mean, we're at a point of where we've seen Trump associates dox some members uh, of the FBI putting their names out there in public. I mean, these are uncharted territories and uncharted moments in what has been kind of an unprecedented and uncharted five years under Donald Trump. Hello, I'm Raji Sohal. In for Mike today on Friday, we got plenty of news suddenly out of Mar-a-Lago, the golf resort where Donald Trump has been holding classified and other documents. And now there are actually growing concerns of violence. For more, we're talking to Global News Washington political correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Hey, Reggie. Hi. So tell us about the FBI's alert that there is an increase in threats. Yeah, and, and that comes uh, on the wake of what we had been speaking about uh, earlier, about um, the, the kind of hatred and vitriol that's been spewing online and from darker parts that are that are going after uh, these agents. And it led uh, the FBI to put a notice out there, uh, not only kind of to the internal group of FBI agents, but to the broader, the broader public, uh, that there is this increased risk where we see politics and law enforcement running headfirst into each other because uh, of of what, you know, Republicans and the former president are, you know, basically using conspiracy to drum up uh, this anger. And it really is putting a target on the people who are tasked with with protecting the laws of this land. Uh, and it, it makes it a much more dangerous moment uh, for not only politicians, but for the people who are supposed to be protecting these politicians. Yeah, we have Fox News reporting that Trump will do whatever he can to help the country after the FBI raid. He said the temperature has to be brought down. This is beginning to sound like January 6th. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think there, there's reporting out there from the New York Times uh, that said that in the, the the days or the hours or the moments surrounding the initial search at Mar-a-Lago, that somebody associated with the Trump orbit reached out to Maine Justice with a message. It's unclear if it actually made its way up to Merrick Garland, the attorney general. But Donald Trump was simply asking, what can he do to kind of, uh, you know, put out the fire that exists in this country, letting the attorney general know that that people are enraged over this search. And, you know, some people are looking at this as kind of a veiled threat by saying, look at what you have done, Department of Justice, by going through my house and getting the getting the base and getting Americans uh, kind of worked up into a frenzy here. And ultimately, look at what the aftermath is. And sure, uh, you know, whether this wants to go back to, you know, the, the beginnings of the makings of January 6th, where election fraud was just drummed up and drummed up, even though it didn't exist, this could be the same thing where you have the former president caught in what has become, uh, you know, a potential criminal investigation here, but refusing to just simply admit that there was wrongdoing. And by not admitting that, what it does is allow for members in the base and members in the circle and members of Republicans to constantly say that this is just a political witch hunt to go after the former president. 
Yeah, Reggie, you're there. So so what is the Hill like these days and, and how are Democrat politicians feeling? Well, I mean, look, you know, I was at the FBI headquarters uh, last week and in, in the hours after uh, the raid, uh, rather the search at Mar-a-Lago, uh, and there were more visible uh, kind of security enforcements walking around the building. Today, there are actual barricades that are outside of some of the entrances to the J. Edgar Hoover building, um, where the FBI headquarters is to ensure that there is more safety. Over the weekend, there was, you know, it's, it's unclear whether it was related to this or, or uh, you know, potentially a mental health issue, but somebody drove their vehicle into a barricade, uh, you know, at, a, at an intersection across from the Capitol beside the Supreme Court, uh, opened fire and then died by suicide. I mean, th- this is an incredibly heated uh, environment through Washington. It always is. But over the last year and a half, beyond January 6th, there has been a legitimate fear throughout the district that something could take place because there is such a heightened political divide. And without something trying to sew that back together, it simply gets further apart. And the further apart that gets, the the more risk can exist, not just here in D.C., but really across the country. And what do you think about the general public? How closely do you think uh, Americans are following this story? It's making international waves. Sure, it's making international news. And I I think that, you know, you're looking at the situation in the same way that you'd be looking at, you know, how people are digesting information to do with January 6th. You have people believing that what took place on January 6th was an insurrection and should never happen again. You have other people who are saying that this is simply just, you know, Democrats trying to go after the former president. And that's exactly what we are seeing right now. The general public, at least when it comes to how politics is moving forward, you'll find Republicans trying to keep this in the news by, you know, protecting the former president's integrity. Democrats, on the other hand, are saying, look, this is another instance of the former president acting rogue, doing something that he should be doing, but also pay attention to this because we as Democrats have passed a massive health care bill and a massive climate bill and a massive infrastructure bill and something for veterans and something for uh, inflation. So Democrats are saying, look, you can there's a fire burning over there, but look at all of the gains that we are uh, building upon. And with midterms not all that far off, uh, that could potentially help Democrats by saying, look, Republicans are, uh, you know, a bit of a mess right now keep them out of office, put us in office, and things will continue to roll smoothly. This may be uh, too legal, but you you can let me know if it is. We know that Trump has been in hot water before and somehow skirted it, right? Controversy after controversy. Is Trump insulated from what's going on right now? Is he protected from it all legally somehow? Uh, You know, I'm not a a legal scholar, but uh, having been in U.S. politics for as long as I have now, uh, the issue is not a legality. The issue is that of precedent, where former presidents uh, have not faced any kind of charges. And that's where the former president and his orbit is trying to lay a foundation to say that it's simply unprecedented to go after uh, a former president. But there are also kind of concerns within the Democratic ring that Donald Trump announcing that he may run for presidency. Uh, if he were to win, if he were to drum up enough support and push aside any of the potential challengers he might face, if Donald Trump winds up back in office again, you end up in a situation where a sitting president is then shielded from indictment. So you have unprecedented territory running up against, um, you know, longstanding judicial process in how to not go after uh, a sitting president. There is a lot of kind of murky uncharted territory here that whatever the Justice Department does, it is going to not only set precedent, but also is going to create a a ripple that's going to kind of move in all directions. 
Finally, Reggie, I wonder what your perspective is on the Republicans uh, in power, Republican politicians, at least, uh, who have supported Trump. Do you see some of them now turning? And what for the ones who haven't, what will it take for them to turn on Trump? I think the, the, the better way to look at this is uh, Donald Trump has always had a firm grip over at the Republican Party and people who often speak out against him, someone like Liz Cheney, find themselves in a political hole that they're unable to come out of and she's likely to not win her primary tomorrow. I think if you go beyond that, this becomes problematic for uh, kind of mainstream or big name Republicans, someone like Mike Pence, someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who have presidential aspirations and they want to do what they can to keep Trumpism around, but not keep Trump around. But here they are now being forced to defend the former president. How do they then go and turn on that defense that they're giving? This is going to be something to watch heading into the primary season. Hey there, welcome back to the program. I'm Raji and I'm in for Mike Smith today. Well, the summer months are normally the busiest for border towns, right? And that means that the duty-free should be hopping too. Well, it's not the case. The latest data on duty-free is that sales are significantly down. Here to talk about it with us is Barbara Barrett, Executive Director of the FDFA. Barbara, thanks for giving us some time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, let's try to understand this. How much are duty-free sales down? Uh, so our economic report that we uh, um, developed after the, the 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 summer, what would typically be our summer peak season, so the July long weekend, both Canada and American July long weekends, um, all of July and the August long weekend showed that across the board, uh, we're on average 45% down compared to pre-pandemic periods. Um, unfortunately, um, this is better uh, than it has been uh, for the last two years, um, as the rest of the economy is, um, you know, re- recovering, almost booming. Uh, we're we're still forty-five uh, percent down. Um, when the border was closed in March 2020, we were at ninety to ninety-five percent down compared to pre-pandemic because we depend uh, wholly on that, on the uh, traffic going over the border. So although uh, 45% down is still um, terrible, um, it, is, it is an improvement from where we've been over the last two years, but we are stagnating uh, now on that, on that uh, improvement. Yeah, yeah, and I, I bet you were hoping that once things eased a little bit that uh, that 45 would pop up. Uh, so do you know yeah. how much the Arrive Can app has to do with discouraging shoppers from crossing the border? Yeah, well, the border is just not back to normal, and the, the arrive can is part of that. The other part of that is um, vaccine requirements. Um, American vac- vaccination levels are not at the same as Canadians, so um, you know having to be vaccinated to come in is is, uh, is is definitely an issue. But the arrive can app is um, definitely a, another deterrent, a barrier to to travelers being able to come in. I mean, it's confusing. It's difficult to do so for seniors. Um, a lot of them don't have smartphones. They don't know how to do it. They're intimidated by it, so they just choose not to come. Um, one of my stores, which uh, would typically uh, have 25 buses over the July long weekend, saw two buses. 
Wow, that's a significant change. And you know, that comment you just uh, shared with us about uh, how the ArriveCan app is difficult for some seniors, it absolutely is. That keeps coming back to me from uh, our listeners that lots of people, you know, just that one thing alone, they can't figure it out smoothly and quickly. It means they're not going to cross the border, even though they used to come all the time. Now, I wonder what your opinion is then on this uh, one-time ArriveCan exemption uh, that travelers coming to Canada could be exempt if they forgot to submit their information through the Arrive can application just one time what do you think about that is that going to change things um well first of all we didn't we weren't informed um being a a a business that is um licensed by the cbsa and they didn't inform us of that which was um interesting um but um also if if the live can is meant to keep canadians safe which they have yet to prove to us that it is but if it is then it's important then then why are we giving exemptions? It just says to me that it's actually not that important. Okay. And uh, what about, do you think, in general, say, for example, if the Rive can was, hey, no longer needed whatsoever, do you think suddenly the business would boom in border towns and duty-free would be hopping again? Well, I, I would certainly hope that. I think ultimately the border needs to get back to normal. Um, and we need to stop putting restrictions on the border. We, it, it, it's a jewel that we have, uh, a Canadian-American jewel, uh, and it's not being treated as such right now. Um, and we need to get rid of the barriers uh, to, for, for tourists to travel back and forth um, over the border. It's not just us who's suffering. If you speak to the mayors from, from the border communities, they'll tell you the same thing. Um, it, 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 we are bearing the brunt of this, thickening of the U.S.-Canadian border. And were small businesses able to stay open? Were they able to hang on, or did you see some closures? Um, so we were able to hang on uh, for the most part. We, uh, we did lose a store or two. And again, these are all independently owned, family-run businesses uh, who've been part of the tourism fabric of Canada for about 40 years. So um, to lose one is, is a big problem. Um, so I think we have lost one and, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were able to hang on because we had these supports, the wage subsidy, the rent subsidy, but those all stopped back in May. We have no supports anymore and we're still 45% down. Wow. A while ago, I did check in with some of those, uh, uh, those services that offer mailboxes, um, just across the border. And some told me they saw their business go down to 10%. And yeah. you're mentioning there that there were not a lot of supports for these kinds of businesses. So then how are they able to, to stay together and how much longer can they do that? Well, we were, uh, they were able to hang on uh, with the, the supports that the, uh, that the government did give, the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy. Um, but again, th- those are gone now. Uh, so how much longer they can hold on? Uh, that's a very good question. All right, Barbara. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me.